Low Light. Written, performed and produced by Melanie Crawley. Episode 1 Under a fingernail moon, cold streets harden as Shirley approaches number 39. She leans the carrier bag delicately against the wall, but rather than knock, she steps lightly away and then sends a message on the neighbour chat. It's on your front step, Gavin. She doesn't want a reply. Brandon Moll at number 26 is folding leaflets for the party in his front room. You can sense his activity rather than see it, as Shirley hurries back down Hawthorne Road towards her smokeless fire. Cat stops her in her tracks with a pale, shocked face. Shirley is yet to form words when they both hear the sound of a slash and a guttural moan. Shirley involuntarily jerks her phone out of her pocket as if she could use it as a weapon to defend herself. Under the fingernail moon, then, there's a spaghetti tableau set up now, with one phone drawn and cocked, four eyes wide and a double volume of breath held. Shirley's phone blares suddenly, underscoring the violent burst of a shadow figure bolting away from number 15 and that murderous sound. Down the road they run, towards the faster, brighter street. Where have you been? Shouldn't we see if everything's okay? Well, yes, obviously, but where have you been, Cat? Is everything okay with Hen? Shirley says. He... I'll... For God's sake, come on! She steps into the road towards the house with the open door. Dial 999 and be ready to press call. Shirley grabs Kat's sleeve with some force and yanks her back. She holds up the phone and shows her the photo sent by Padma, just as the blood-stained woman herself is framed in the doorway. And then, after a second, collapses back down the steps her gold finger rings glinting in the porch light as her arm arches gaily in silence before her head cracks on the cement birdbath and drops down again, finally lolling heavily among the narcissi. Look up. Higher. Find that lunar talon. Got it? Now, look down and left. Two hundred yards. That's it. And plunge into that dark rectangle of rampant brambles and crumbling Victorian snobbery. So dark is it that Google Maps is stumped and passers-by comment on the disconcerting quiet over the wall. Inside the building there, Eric stirs the pot on the gas ring. His laminate pass rests on the table next to Key's Harsh white fluorescent light bounces back from the inside of the window pane. Eric's head displays a little of the glare too, so our delicate moon loses out. The cutlery, the pan, the collar tag on Deirdre all contribute to the atmosphere of needs-must activity. The cracked screen of the man's mobile phone chirps insistently sending out greenish light to compete with the strip with every new comment. It attracts Eric's attention. Something must be happening over on Hawthorne. 
He remembers his glasses are upstairs, though. He lets his attention spring back into its dark, worn groove. He stirs and stares and shifts his slippered feet. He sniffs and puts his chin out as if on a stalk before easing it round to the side to loose the last of the day's tension. Deary Deirdre, my dearest danger cat, what to do, what to do, what to do. Deirdre does not like Eric's name play. says she. Now don't grumble, dear, dinner is nearly ready. You can't blame me for worrying. You can blame me for everything else, but not for worrying. I'm entitled to a worry of an evening. And to a bit of misery, too, come to think. Meow. Thank you. I knew you'd understand. Now where is... As if the dark outside could hear his worry, it rattles at the front door. A sad bit of wood that couldn't keep hold of its fancy glass and has been shamed ever since Eric taped over its cracks with a bit of cardboard three years ago. It daren't put up any fight with the weather and admits a slight figure with some of the night air, straight up the stairs, only scratching Eric's peripheral vision. Shirley whispers, Help! Clears her throat, repeats it more loudly, more like a shout, so that Brandon peers out of his bay, and one by one, front doors open all along Hawthorne Road. Number 17 is a slow opener, the concealed human only 14 years old and not at all sure of the form here. Lewis strides over from 22, breath thick, athlete's body working purposefully, his face a question. Shirley sees him and recovers herself, lifting the phone to say, Ambulance and police, to the insistent operator demanding information. He hears her and hurries into Padma's front garden, hands over his mouth, eyes round. Don't touch her! Anything! I mean, in case... Cat splutters. What? No, do! See if she's okay! Shirley cuts across, almost back under the moon and sanity. What's happened, Shirl? says Gavin, peering over the wall. Don't call me Shirl. Do you know any first aid? What? Why? Who's a nurse or a doctor or a vet? A vet? It's Padma. Jesus. Danny, I'll get Danny. I'll go. Brandon has gathered pace from further up and is larging it down the hill with his heft and his big boots and pink fat limbs afly. He breaks into a trot. Lewis has knelt down and is trying not to touch Padma, even though he is applying cold fingers to her hot throat. Cat looms over them and asks, Is she breathing? He turns his head and with wet eyes shakes it. Anyone can see she's gone. Her life has absented itself from her sensible body. Her lips are dark red with lipstick, but the blood across her abdomen claims glory, and all the eyes in the growing crowd are trained on the gash. A frog leaps from under the ferns, greenly damp at the base of the bay window wall. Lewis pulls his hand back, catching the hair at Padma's neck, knocking the birdbath and crashing the quiet street and its muted group. Farrow whimpers 
and Laura wraps her in concerned arms. Has someone called the police? Tanya booms out in practised resonance. Shirley, says Cat. What are you doing back here? Gravels Mick, and Shirley pulls on Cat's sleeve for the second time that evening and takes them both back into the neck of Rowan Drive and slightly away from the growing bloat of shock and righteous indignation. Charity is high up, right at the top of the building, looking out and unseen herself as she concentrates on the scene below without turning on the light in the room. She calms her ragged breathing and shrugs off the dark jacket. Her sweat-filmed face is outlined by Mr Moon. She can't see what's happening down there, but there's something, and given the evening's events, she's alert to the potential danger the noises might represent. Her chest rises and falls, and her eyes soften. Slowly, she settles back on her heels, and when the silence has introduced itself and taken a seat with her, she allows her eyes to close for a second. She opens them on the moon, accusing, leans to the light switch, presses down, turns back, and then further to the mirror and sees the blood. Air she can ill afford to lose leaps from her body as her hands cover the stains. In the dimly lit attic, then, Charity holds on to her belly. Into her head flash scenes from a film. Her cheeks feel cool, her bare arms do. Her chin lifts as air creeps through the building from an open door and meets her regretful mind. Eyes snap back to alert. She stills. The door slams two floors down. Charity understands. Then she smiles. She smiles. She stops her smile. It's nasty. But she removes her hands and looks at the blood. The blood almost comforts her. Told you I would, she says. Told you and a tear gets loose and glints in the electric light. She flicks the light off again and leans her head onto the glass of the window, letting the moonlight bathe her and her mouth gape in silent sobs. You should leave. Shirley barely whispers into Cat's swimming eyes. Everyone will be out in a minute. The police will want to talk to you. Yeah, I... they will. But I have to stay for that, don't I? Cat stammers out. And I came to... I... A pause is allowed to expand against the tarmacked ground, the wall, the massive tree trunk and the pock-marked white-bricked houses, against the hum, the murmurs of dismay, the rise of disbelieving words. Those shock waves push back at them, and Cat sucks her silence in and admits her purpose onto her face like a thief revealing their loot. The moon still hangs, dispassionate. You did it. The merest, the barest, the shyest of nods. And Shirley's face twists as if it will wrench in two, but then she slams down her resolve and hardens her eyes back to slate, 
she flies off Cat to the dark end of the cul-de-sac. Jeering sirens bully up Hawthorne, wrenching faces away from the death of Padma Vishwakarma towards their insistent blue lights. Cat's face is washed too, and she looks over to the scene with the substantial crowd now consisting of not only the well-meaning neighbours, the curious and the devious have entered the arena, and all of them have noticed that there are not one but two events worth their attention this Sunday evening. Cat shrinks as the loudest and smirkiest of them breaks rank and turns towards her. Evening, Cat. Hi, Lance. Back thirty seconds and already in the thick of it, eh? Um, Lance, Padma's dead. Don't make fun. Not making fun, Cat. Obviously, that's your take, not mine. You saw what happened, though, did you? Hmm? Told the police? No? The detective has just arrived, I think. I'll take you over. No, no, Lance, no, I... What? Come on. You're not disappearing again. What? No, Lance, no, stop it. Who the fuck do you think you are? Get off! Fuck off! She shakes him off, stumbling in the direction of the police car just arrived. Lance kindles a smirk and allows it to settle, small enough for self-satisfaction, while evading immediate detection by the dibble in the form of Detective Sergeant Connolly, who perks up at the sound of the expletive, but concentrates on the five-foot-nothing ghostly woman heading towards him. Cat is beseeching in her stare. I think I was nearby when it happened. I heard something. I know who it was, interrupts Sally. I saw her. It was that girl from the old house. Who? frowns Cat. You wouldn't know her, smooths Sally. She's only lived there for a month or so. One of Eric's. Eric climbs the stairs with the steaming bowl, followed shortly by a freshly fed Deirdre. The red and wood and worn hall is cut now and again by sharp light from the street lamp, close enough to the front of the house to keep our moon at bay. He climbs heavily, one step and a heave, a step and a heave. His mind is already with her as he worries and looks up, sure there is a light, knows she came in. He breathes raggedly as he makes it onto the landing, knocks gently, strains to hear. He chances it and creaks the door open. There's barely any light at the back of the house, but his practised gaze can make out the soft, dark shape on the bed. You hungry? There's beans. The shape shakes its head. Tea? A sound that could be... Nah. You in for the night? A shrug. All right, well, tell me if you go out. Hmm. He retreats to the landing and shuts the door with a click. A loud jumble of music blasts from the other side of the door. The cat runs down the stairs, five steps, six. Eric finds another door shuffles inside, holds it open and throws the light switch, yellow electric smiling on him and the chancer cat. In another decade, 
he would have settled into the chair and sent his eyes and his head out of the window in search of the beginning of something. But now he has endured poverty and distress for over eleven years, and his energies are almost gone. With every lie, every smirk, and every stab of cruelty he endures, his eyes dim and his heart hardens. The books lower at him from their stacks, long having ceased to fizz with intent and imagination. He suspects Deirdre has begun to water them rather than risk the dark track into the undergrowth outside. Eric's gaze drops down to his still lively phone screen and he reaches for his glasses to catch up with the neighbour gossip. Yesterday, Shirley worked flat out. Her voice pondered over messages meant for charity shop shoppers in the morning before returning to the slashing eyebrows and impossibly handsome face of Romano and his hapless virgin bride-to-be. Chapter 2 Chapter 2 is testing Shirley, and she failed to reach the end of it, sitting instead in silence, staring at the blue-washed fabric of the inside of her cabin. She felt a certainty that she would see Cat again soon. Cat would arrive with her translucent skin and news of her son her son, Henry, who had to be hidden, dealt with. The pain of thinking of him and what he had done and yet what he was to her was impossible. One thing and its opposite at the same time. His intense love, his light, the harm he did. In December, Cat had taken Henry away and she should only have been gone for a day or two, but Shirley had been left without news and with the task of explaining, or not, to the neighbours for three months now. And if she returned, suddenly? Shirley would not forgive her. Now, at number 11, Rowan, Shirley has been standing still. The front door rattles, Having loomed in the dark for seven minutes by the cooker clock, she starts but doesn't move. She gives the hallway and the framed rectangle of blurred outside light the side eye, knowing she can't be seen. A slow pace backwards behind the fridge and a cock of the head down to Reg, who sits strangely silent at her feet, ready for action. His lead is clipped, meaty squares settle in her pocket, Poo bag, check, tick, phone, key. Exit, upstage right, over the cobbles, down the gravel path, past the wolfsbane under the poplar with a glance at the moon crescent reflected in the greenhouse. Shirley eases the gate latch and is off, up the ginnel. Reg is single-minded. Something's up. Usually he doesn't like giving his attention to just one pursuit when he could give it to, say, five. He ignores the sound of the Amdramas in rehearsal as the passage wends past the tiny theatre unseen and out they pop, quick left and off down Alder. Ten paces is all they manage and Reg is up on his hind feet with all sense gone. His eight years of existence suddenly reduced to six months 
and the dog's inner puppy surprises a preoccupied Shirley into losing his lead. He's off into Eric's dark rectangle. Shit! Reg! Reg! Come here, Reg! A phone's ring screeches from her pocket and she drops the bloody thing in a panic. Picking it up, she tries to keep her eyes on Reg, but all there is in the dark park is a shudder and low-moving growl. Shit! In she plunges, and she's on her front on the ground, scent of fox excrement on one or more of her limbs. A hot line stings her face. Her knee pulses. She gasps as she tries to stand on that leg. Upright and angry, she stops and listens for the dog. Reg, she says, rather than shouts. Despite the strangeness of the place, existing as it does among suburban streets, she knows it's not that big, or at least the land within the boundary isn't that extensive. At least half of the area is taken up with water. And then she hears the splash. Shirley lopes through the tangle of trees and shrubs, fumbling for the phone torch, which she switches on just as she loses her upright stance for the second time. She lands in the pond, which by rights should be called a lake, and her torch is extinguished. She sits up in an explosion of putrid mud. Reg is in her arms then, with a major wind to communicate through the medium of tail wagging, and her eyes open and settle with astonishment on a canvas hold-all a few feet away, caught on a hummock of rock at the edge of the water. Reg! What? What's that? Reg doesn't answer, but he does try pulling the bag over, almost succeeding in submerging it completely, just as Shirley grabs a handle and pulls it open. What's inside? Well, cash, actually. Loads of it. Shirley stares dripping. Reg wags proudly. A phone rings again. Shirley clicks back into the moment and zips up the bag. She grabs the phone and silences it. As she and Reg haul their lolly out of the pond, an upstairs light in the house is switched on and a cloud passes over the fingernail moon. You have been listening to Low Light, Written, performed and produced by Melanie Crawley for Crawley Voice Studio. Find out more at crawleyvoicestudio.com. Thank you for listening.